All right, if, you're, if, if you've been with us, we said that the Apostle Paul, with the help of Jesus, was building a church. And remember, a church is not a building, it's people. The church is now in the building. It's a community of believers who commit themselves to gather regularly under leaders to follow Christ. It's a group of forgiven followers. So some of you are in the building, but you're not part of the church yet because you don't become a part of the church by going to church. You become a part of Christ's church when, when you trust the Lord and, and he becomes your personal Lord and Savior and then you're part of the body of Christ. So God's design then and desire is to build the church. This wasn't our idea. It was Jesus' idea. When he was on earth, he said, I will build my church. And I think sometimes we have to, to recognize that there's a balance between quantity and quality. The name of the game is not how big of a church you have. From an earthly standpoint, bigger is better, but not necessarily from a spiritual standpoint. So when Jesus gave the blueprints to the church, the church obviously begins with forgiven followers. The church is not to be filled with unbelievers who are sneaking in. Not that anybody's not welcome to, to, to join us, but to become part of God's church, you, you give your life to Christ, and then you're, you're brought into the community. So Jesus kind of gives some blueprints. He goes, now I want this community to be a very loving, unified community. So, so if, if, if he's uh, giving the builder the plan, this is what I want. There has to be a loving, and that, that was a non-negotiable. Jesus said, you, you must love one another. This is how the world's going to know that you're Christians by loving one another. But that wasn't the only thing on the blueprint. And unfortunately, one of the problems today is that there are a lot of churches, that's the only thing they see on the blueprint, and they misunderstand what that means. So love means whatever. Love is love. So we don't, we don't worry about morals or ethics or how people live because that's unloving. When in fact, that's not at all what Jesus had in mind. So in addition to the idea of unity in the church, Jesus also wanted purity. The problem is you're bringing together a bunch of contaminated sinners. So how is it that the Lord is going to bring purity into the church? Well, first of all, he died on the cross to forgive us from our sins. We come into this community, and when you come to Christ, you are completely forgiven. Secondly, he makes us new creatures, new creations. He changes us from the inside, and that's going to begin to overflow to the outside so that externally I'm going to become what I've been already made internally. But one of the third ways he does that is that he puts us in an accountable community in which he says, now, you, you need to work with one another to not allow one another to just go back to your sinful practices. You need to work to, with one another so that just because someone says they became saved and they get baptized, that if they're living an immoral life, you don't just look the other way. So this is what was happening in the Corinthian church. They had someone in their church who was being very immoral, and everyone knew it. And not only were they not sad about it, they were actually proud of it. Now, why would you be proud? Let's say you had somebody in your church who was beating his wife or someone who was committing adultery. Why would you be proud of that? But what, were, what they were proud of is that they were so loving. See, they totally misunderstood. That is not loving to tolerate sin. You are not a loving parent because you don't discipline your children. 
So Paul finds out about this, and he goes, what? You have a, an immoral person in the church, everyone knows about it, and you're all happy about that? Oh, we've got to fix that. So as we read this chapter, he's going to use an Old Testament analogy to sort of reinforce this, but this is so practical for us today. So the Old Testament analogy that he's going to use is the analogy of the Passover, okay? So some of you know the Old Testament. Some of you have heard that word. If, if you have Jewish friends, they still celebrate Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and they, and they celebrate the Passover. They have these certain traditions. But the Passover, if, 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 for those of you that know it, I'll just remind you, in the Old Testament, when, when the Jews began to multiply in Egypt, God wanted to bring them out of Egypt under Moses and into their promised land. But he has this ongoing um, battle with Pharaoh who stubbornly refuses to let the people go. So God sends one plague after another. The final plague was that God said, I'm going to kill all of the firstborn of the Egyptians. Now imagine, those of you who have children, think of your firstborn, especially the sons. I'm going to, God said, because of their wickedness and their rebellion and their hardness of heart and their refusal to let my people go, I'm going to kill all of your firstborn. But then he said to his people, I don't want to do that to you. So here's the deal. Take a lamb. Make sure that this lamb is unblemished and spotless. And I want you to sacrifice that lamb on the evening of this Passover. And then I want you to cook that lamb. And I want you to, to eat that lamb while you have your your robes on, and a staff in your hand, ready to leave. But the one thing he also told them to do is he said, I want you to take the blood of that lamb and put it on the, the doorpost and on the lintels, the two sides here. Now, again, those of you who are kind of being perceptive, go, that sounds like a picture of the coming Jesus, the lamb of Passover. You go, yep, yep, it is. So, God said, put the blood on the door. And then he said, when my death angel passes over Egypt, Every home where I see the blood on the doorpost, I will pass over you. I will not destroy your firstborn. And so God told them that from that day on that they should celebrate this feast called the Passover. But being fond of imagery to point us to Christ and visual aids, God also told them to do one more thing. He said, go through your house because way back then they had yeast. Those of you who have tried to bake without yeast know that it doesn't end well, doesn't taste well, or good. Sorry for my bad grammar. But, but the point is, in the Bible then, yeast began to be a picture of sin. There's nothing sinful about yeast. You're not a bad person if you eat yeast. But he said, before the Passover begins, I want you to remove all, they called it leaven, remove all the leaven from your home. So that became known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So get rid of all the leaven. Now, the reason for that is the leaven was representative of sin, right? So they knew, the, they knew these general things. And, and as the gospel came, God was pointing them. Well, actually, that was just to point you to Jesus. He's the great Lamb of God. God is sending His judgment one day. When He sees the blood of Jesus applied to your life, He will pass over you. But when you become a forgiven follower of Christ... God wants you to get the leaven out of your life. And so Paul's going to take this analogy. He goes, all right, let's, let's apply this to our situation in Corinth. 
And what we're going to see here is four things. Number one, there's a report that there's great sin in this church. There's a report of immorality. Number two, Paul goes, and, and now there's two reactions to this immorality. There's your reaction, and there's my reaction. Third, after explaining what his reaction is, you've got to deal with it. He says, let me tell you why. Let me give you the reasons why we have to do this. And then finally, we'll close with the right response. This is how you do it. So let's start. We're going to look in verse 1, the report of immorality. Paul says, it's actually reported that there's immorality among you. Now, the Greek word here is porneia, from which we get the word pornography or pornographic. So porneia is, in the New Testament is any type of sexual sin. Okay, God is not opposed to sex. He created it. It's good. It's not the nasty or it's not just something to have kids. It's a blessing. It's a gift, but it's for marriage. And any sex outside of marriage is porneia. It's, it's immoral. The Bible says marriage is honorable and the bed is undefiled. But fornicating, having sex before marriage, or adultery, God will judge. Hebrews 13, 4. So because of the corruption of humanity, because we're all sinful, people are not content. We're not content to, to limit our sexual activities to marriage. So we have now people who are fornicating, committing adultery. We have same-sex relationships. We have all kinds of perversions towards children. And all. it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's sad and, and gross. And none of us are immune to sexual temptation. So in this case, they had actually in their church an incestual relationship. There was a man in the church who was sleeping with either his stepmother or maybe even worse, his mother. So Paul says it's actually reported, everyone knows about it, that there's immorality among you. In fact, it's porneia of such a kind that doesn't even exist among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. So in the report, you now know what the meaning of this is. But notice the monstrosity of this particular sin. He goes, this isn't even something that pagans do. Like, like you know, suppose you said, oh yeah, so-and-so are living together. Unbelievers would be like, big deal. But if you said, yeah, uh, incest, most people are like, what? Even unbelievers are like, that's wrong. In fact, Paul rarely says this. And one of the things that struck me is one of the few other times he says this, he says, if a man does not provide for his own household. So let's say you're a deadbeat dad, right? If a man does not provide for his own household, he's worse than an unbeliever. So everybody knows it. It's reported. Hey, did you hear about the church at Corinth? They have a guy committing incest, and, um, and he's, you know, welcome. They're, he's up in the front row praising the Lord. And Paul's like, what? So that's the report. So then he goes, now, let's talk about how you're reacting and how I'm reacting. So verse 2, he says, you have become arrogant. The, the Greek word here is you're puffed up, okay? And I'm telling you, this is as relevant today as it is back then. There are churches that are proud of the fact that we're progressive. We're tolerant. We're not like those old crazy fundamentals always telling people how bad they are. We, God is love, right? So they, they, they probably on their website, come to our church, 
Come as you are. And by the way, after you get saved, stay as you are. And people are like, I'm going to that church, right? That's great. And Paul said this would happen. He goes, in the last days, people will not want to hear the word. You preach the word and you reprove and rebuke and exhort. And it says the time will come when they won't want that. They want teachers after their own desires. Who doesn't want to go to a church that says, do whatever you want? So Paul says, what you should have done is mourned instead. Now that word mourn is an interesting word. If you remember, Jesus used that in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn. Now we generally use that when someone loses a loved one. They're in mourning. But we almost never use this when it comes to sin. They're in mourning. Well, what do you mean? Did they lose a loved one? No, they're mourning over sin. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are those who mourn, right? Because when we think about our own sin, that should sadden us. That should cause us to, to be grieved. Now, we shouldn't stay there beating ourselves up. Mourning is always uh, uh, to move us in motion to the cross where we find comfort. So, but this is going to be a technical term that, that Paul goes, here's what we're going to do. You should be mourning, and he's going to explain what that means. You shouldn't be glad. You should be sad. In fact, he says, what, what you should be thinking about is that the person who's done this deed would be removed from your midst. Wait, wait, what? Just, just take them out of the church? And Paul goes, yeah, I didn't stutter. Well, why? Why would we do that? He goes, well, okay, that's your reaction. But he goes, now let me tell you what my reaction, verse 3. On my part, even though I'm absent in my body, I'm still present with you in my spirit. Here, here's what I decided. I have already judged this person who has done this as though I were present. So remember when Jesus said this, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm in the midst of that. His primary meaning to that was not when you and Joe go to the baseball game and, and are watching the game. It's not you and a couple friends talking about Jesus over coffee. His primary meaning of that is when you assemble as a church community, when you gather together, particularly on the Lord's Day, when you gather in my name, I'm gathering with you. And it is kind of interesting to think that way. When, when we come walking into our gathering, it's not because we're in the sanctuary. It's because the people of God are gathered in the name of Jesus. And when you do, the presence of Jesus in a special way is there. You'd all agree with this. Jesus is everywhere, right? But I think we'd all agree that in certain ways, he's present in special ways. He's everywhere, but he's also at the right hand of God. He's everywhere, but he's also in my life. He's everywhere, but when we gather in the name of Jesus, he says, I am in the midst of you. So Paul goes, so here's what you should do. When you gather, like the Lord's Day, he said, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in your spirit, and then he says this, with the power of the Lord Jesus. What? Like, did, did, did Paul come in with a little charger? He goes, I'm in here with the, with the we're going to bring the power of Jesus today. No, that, that was an, an assumption that when Jesus is present, the power of Jesus is present. How do you feel about that? <clears throat> Depends on where you are with Jesus. I like that. <clears throat> the power of Jesus is present to heal, to forgive, to help. But the power of Jesus is also present to deal, not just to heal, but to deal with sin. So Paul goes, 
When you gather together and the power of Jesus is present, here's what you need to do. Now, this one will take you off the, 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 the deep end. He goes, I've decided to do this. Deliver such a one to Satan. What does that mean? Like put him in a box, call Amazon, say, I want this prime. And the devil gets a knock on the door. Hey, got a package. Oh, hey. What does he mean by delivering someone to Satan? And, and then he goes, and by the way, that's not going to end well for this guy. Deliver him to Satan. Why? For the destruction of his flesh. That Paul is so mean. Is that mean? First of all, what does it mean to deliver a person to Satan for the destruction of his flesh? Now, interpreters have had different views of this because sometimes when the Bible uses the word flesh, it's talking about your sinful disposition, that old um, remaining sin in us. So the Bible says, don't, don't give in to the flesh. Walk in the spirit so you're not bringing forth the deeds of the flesh. So some people go, well, whatever you do to this guy, it's just going to deal with his flesh, right? And I'm going, I, I, I don't think that's what it means here. I think destruction of his flesh is he's done. He's going to die. Now, I could be wrong, but I'm not alone. Many interpreters think what Paul's saying is, you give this guy over to Satan so that he dies, okay? So, the only other time Paul uses this phrase is in 1 Timothy 1, where he speaks of two other believers who have gone off the deep end in sin, and he goes, I've delivered them over to Satan so that they might be taught not to blaspheme. But in this case, it seems... It's such an extreme case of sin. Why would God, maybe I'll ask it this way, would God ever kill a Christian? Or would God ever intentionally allow a Christian to die? And the answer is yes. The Bible's very clear on that. But it's always out of love. God does discipline his children. And he tenderly and patiently speaks. And he graciously and, 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 and with much restraint, spanks. But on rare occasions, God does slay. We're going to read about that later in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul says, some of you have taken the Lord's Supper to such an extreme, immoral position of how you're treating other Christians. He goes, some of you are weak and sick. Some of you have already died. So 1 John 5, 16 talks about brothers who are sinning unto death. So I think what we have here is, is a situation where this guy's sin has progressed to a point where Paul says, deliver him over to Satan. Now, let's do some backtracking. You and I already belong to Satan. Before we came to Jesus, the Bible says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. When you became a Christian, the Bible says you were transferred, Acts 26, from the power of Satan to the power of God. Colossians 1 says, you were delivered from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. You glad about that? I am. Thank you, God. I know what it's like to be beaten down by the devil and held captive to him. That's why I sing meaningfully when I say, I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold and then be held in sin's dread sway. Because I know what it's like to be under the power and influence of Satan and I didn't know that that's what it was, but I knew what happened when I got free, didn't you? 
Now, it doesn't mean you got saved at four years old. You're like, thank God I'm free from my sin. But you get it. If you're a Christian, you realize the power of Satan and the privilege it is to be not only delivered from him, but protected by him. 1 John 5 says, we are of God, little children, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, but the evil one cannot touch us. Can we give a praise to Jesus for that? Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you surround me with your loving kindness and your protection. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So why doesn't Jesus take us right home to heaven when he saves us? Glory, glory, beam me up, Godie. Because he leaves us here to transform us into communities, into these rescue stations where the lost world can be brought to Christ. But Jesus takes this very seriously. In order for the lost world to be drawn to Christ, my church has to be unified and purified. Otherwise, you lose your influence. So there are situations where the Lord's like, I'm not going to throw you out of my family, but if you continually refuse to follow me, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves, I'm going to have to take you home. So, every Christian has been delivered away from Satan. Church discipline is when you're putting a person back out into the world and Satan now then has permission to harm them. Well, why would God do that? Well, look what Paul says. This is a really challenging verse. He goes, I want his flesh destroyed that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Wait. So, if he doesn't die, he won't be saved? And those of you who are growing in grace, you're learning what we, we talk about theology. Theology is not for a bunch of theologians sitting around smoking a cigar and going, what do you think of the ontological? No, every Christian is a theologian, just some better than others. We all have good views about God if they're based on Scripture, and then bad views that we need to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. That's why we love to encourage people to learn doctrine. So, for example, one of the chief doctrines of the gospel of grace is the calling and keeping of the Lord. I don't believe for a moment that a true Christian can lose their salvation. When people go, are you one of them once saved, always saved? I go, no, nah, God's one of them once saved, always saved. Because he says everyone he predestines, he calls. And everyone he calls, he justifies. And everyone he justifies, he sanctifies. So I believe with all my heart that God calls and keeps. And I'm comforted by that. So then when someone says, well, what about my friend Joey there? He was saved and he lost it. And I go, eh. He looked saved, smelled saved, and acted saved. But if he was saved, he didn't lose it. Because everyone God justifies, he glorifies. So with that in mind, Paul's saying this, that it is the justice of God if God were not to deal with this person, it would be indicative that he's not a believer. In Hebrews chapter 12, it actually says this. God disciplines all of his children when they sin. If you are without discipline, you're not a child of God. So that's something to think about. When you sin, how does that settle in your soul? If you're like, well, it's quite pleasant as long as I don't get caught. Well, sinning's fun. Let's not be stupid. Sinning's fun or else no one would do it, right? Hebrews 11 talks about the pleasures of sin. But when the dust settles, are you good with that? Are you okay with having blatant sin in your life as long as you don't get caught? 
Because 1 John 3, 9 says, no one who has been born from God will continually practice sin. He can't because God's seed abides in him. So I think what God's saying here is this would demonstrate that this guy is a believer because the Lord did indeed show his justice by taking him to heaven. And this is what's called church discipline. So, so we've seen the report is you got a problem in your church. Houston, you got a problem in your church. Two reactions. The people's reaction, we love everybody. Paul's reaction, you got to deal with this. You need to discipline him. So, at this point, this is where some Christians get upset. That's mean. You Christians are mean. You're hateful. You, you tell someone it's wrong. When in fact, it's not mean to deal with sin. That's loving. Would you want a doctor who... Who, who after he examines you says, you're fine. And then you find out later that you have cancer. And you ask him, why didn't you tell me? And he goes, I didn't want to be mean. It's not mean to tell people the truth. And so Paul's going to explain, here's why we need to deal with it. Number one, that his spirit might be saved. It'll show that he is a believer. The second reason, we have to deal with sin because otherwise it spreads. Look at verse 6. Paul goes, you know how you're boasting about the fact that you accept this guy? What's that going to say to this guy? He says, your boasting's not good. Now he's going to go to the Passover illustration. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? So the irony of, of leaven, yeast, is that it spreads. So imagine a couple comes forward to get married. Dun, 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 and she's clearly pregnant. Right? Everybody knows it. And we just go through the wedding as though there's no elephant in the room. Well, what message does that send to our young people? So personally, if I do a wedding of a couple that's pregnant or had a child and everybody knows about it, I just, first of all, ask them, do you, do you agree that that was wrong as believers? Have, have you asked God to forgive you? And are you okay with us just bringing that out so that Everyone knows that, yeah, we, we know that they've made a mistake and they've asked God's forgiveness. Now, some of you might say, that's mean, that's judgmental. And I'm going, well, what if we don't? What if we just pretend, no, there's nothing. Uh. So, so the idea is, Paul says, if we don't deal with sin in the church, it's going to spread. If we go, oh, yeah, that couple, they're Christians, they live together, that guy's having an affair, that just causes it to spread because then all of a sudden others are emboldened right? And you know that as a teacher, you know that as a parent. If you don't deal with situations, it's only going to encourage others to, to go, oh, I guess it's okay. So Paul says, the reason why we have to deal with it is it shows God's justice, it stops the spread of sin, and then ultimately he goes, here's why we need to deal with it. The sacrifice of Christ demands it. Jesus didn't die to save us in our sins, he died to save us from our sins. And this is cool. I love this verse. So he, he, he draws out the, the analogy. He goes, if you've got a sinning believer in your church, that's like having leaven. So he goes, clean out the old leaven that you might be a new lump just in, in, as in fact you are unleavened. In other words, this is cool. People of God, we are forgiven. We are new creatures in Christ. God sees us as pure and holy saints of God. That's who you are. Now start living that way. He doesn't say, 
clean up your act so that you could become new leaven. He goes, that's who you are. And that's the cool thing about the Christian is we don't try to become who we aren't. We, we, we become who we truly are because we are now new creatures in Christ. We are a new creation. God has implanted within us a new heart. And he has given us a desire to follow him. And he is transforming us. So Paul goes, look, the reason you need to deal with this is because that's what Christ died for. So, so he draws on this analogy. He goes, you are unleavened. In fact, he goes, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Amen? How many people have grown up in, in, in for example, the Roman Catholic Church every Sunday going, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world? but haven't stopped and thought about what that means. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Is there anything in that phrase that says, he, he did his part, you do yours. You might have to go to purgatory for a while. You have to be a good person to get to heaven. When Jesus hung on that cross, he said, it is finished. Jesus paid it all. We're just beggars, right? Amen? It's finished. So Paul goes, if Christ took all of our sin and died for all of our shame and filth and dirt, past, present, and future, praise the Lord, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, and we celebrate that. That's what we come and sing. I cast my mind on Calvary. Why? Because we celebrate that. He goes, then why would you want to have sin in the church? He goes, that's the whole point. So let's, let's celebrate the feast, he says in verse 8. Not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What does he mean by sincerity and truth? Does he mean we all have to be sinless? If you want to come to this church, you better be sinless. No. But it says if you're going to be a child of God, I want you to be sincere and truthful. Well, what does that mean? In 1 John chapter 1, it says, if we say that we have not sinned, we're deceiving ourselves. If we say that we're not sinners, we're calling God a liar. But it says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us. So interestingly, David said this idea of sincerity and truth. You remember Psalm 51 when David confessed to his adultery? He said, Lord, you desire truth in the inner man. This explains why parents who see their child with the cookie still in their mouth and they know the kid deceived and disobedient, but they still ask them the question, did you eat that cookie? Why do they waste the oxygen? Why did God waste his eternal power by asking Adam, did you eat from the tree? Because God desires truthfulness and sincerity. So, so John goes on in chapter 1. He goes, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with God. And you're like, well, yeah, that's a problem. I'm not perfect. I can't walk in the light. And I go, no, no, you don't understand. To walk in the light doesn't mean you're perfect. To walk in the light means you're sincere and you deal with your sin. Because he says this, if we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus keeps cleansing me. Why would I need to be cleansed if walking in the light means I'm perfect? If you're perfect, I give you permission right now to go on home because this sermon's not for you. But if you're still struggling with your sin, here's what God's saying. I just want sincerity and truth. Just be honest and repent. Deal with it. Confess it. 
Don't tolerate it. Don't hide it. Don't pretend it's okay. Don't live a double life and stay in the darkness. So God says, here's what I want from my community. I died to forgive them, but let's face it. Don't look around. Just look within and ask, you think there might be anybody here that's, that's in sin right now, that's, that's living a double life and, and not being obedient to Christ? And they know it, and they're not ready to deal with it. Can you imagine that there are people still like that? Yeah, that's not hard for me to imagine because I know how my heart is. So, what does it look like? Paul says, listen, God wants purity in the church. Here's the report of immorality. Here's how you're reacting. Here's how I'm reacting. And here's why we need to deal with it. Because Jesus was slain for this. Because if we don't deal with it, it's going to spread. So at the end of the day, we go, okay, Paul, what do you want us to do? What does God want us to do? He goes, look, I'll tell you what to do. So begin with me in verse 9, the last part of this chapter. He goes, I'm going to tell you how to deal with this. He goes, but before I tell you how to deal with this, I got to fix something. I already told you to deal with this, and you misunderstood me. I wrote you an earlier letter, and you misunderstood me. This is funny because, you know, how can Paul write an earlier letter? This is 1 Corinthians. Well, that other letter that he wrote wasn't inspired by God. But what we learned from this is that he had written them an earlier letter, said, listen, you can't associate with immoral Christians. If they continue to persist in their sins, deal with them. They misunderstood him. They thought he said, don't associate with immoral people. People. So if your neighbor's a cusser and he... He, um, he curses and drinks and gets drunk and he's a liar. Don't get near him because he's a sinner. That's nonsense. Paul goes, if you were not to associate with sinners, you better get on a rocket ship and go live in a space station out of this world because there's no place on the planet that you're not going to be around sinners. Jesus hung around sinners. He was a friend of sinners. He went to their parties. He didn't get wasted. He didn't sin with them. God wants us to be around sinners unless they're dragging us into their sins. So Paul goes, let me correct something first. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. But I didn't mean with the immoral people of this world. I didn't mean not to associate with covetous swindlers and idolaters who are not believers, he goes, if that was the case, you'd have to go out of this world. And let me just take a brief detour here. Statistically, the average Christian, after two years of being converted, has zero unbelieving friends. Hey, tell me about who are your friends. Oh, do you have any unbelievers who are your friends? No. I left that world. Go, I get what you mean. 2 Corinthians 6 says, come out and be separate. I get what you mean. You, you left the world of sin and then just... Just so I can help you with this. Some of you go, I lost a lot of friends when I became a Christian. No, you didn't. You lost a lot of sin companions. Because if they wrote you off the day you started following Jesus, they weren't your friends. They were your sin companions. And sin companions will love you all day long until you leave the, 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 the darkness. And then that reminds them of judgment. So then they hate you. But God wants Christians to have meaningful relationships with non-Christians that are intentional. And you ready for this? redemptive relationships. How do I know that? Because Paul said, I will become all things to all men that I might save some. I'll give you a, a, an example that will help this sink in. 
How many people do you think get saved from a stranger handing them a tract? Hardly anybody. You know who gets saved? People who have friends and family members. Survey, please. How many of you became a Christian through a stranger? No one witnessed to you. They just gave you a tract. Raise your hand. One. How many of you became a Christian through a friend or family member? Huh. Novel thought. So Paul goes, I'm not telling you don't associate with unbelievers, but they're redemptive relationships. You don't have to preach Jesus to them every time. It, it's so sad. Christians are like, I don't have anything in common with them. I'm like, that's one of the dumbest things you ever said. Did you know that they like to go to restaurants just like you do? They like ball games. They like movies. They like picnics. They have a lot. In, they like to go to the beach. I don't have anything in common with them. Yes, you do. You're a human on planet earth in the image of God. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, you make an axe murderer, your best friend, come over for dinner, but you get it. Like, I don't know why Christians, we just, we just hide in our little trenches and then once a year we fly out with our gospel tracks and we knock on everyone's door. You want to come to the evangelistic meeting? And they go, get out of here. And you go, ah, oh, they're not elect anyway. And then we get back together. Let's assess the damage. Was anybody hurt? Yeah, one guy slammed the door on me. Oh, let's pray for him. You know, come on. Jesus is like, just get out there. You got... People all around you, co-workers, neighbors, friends, annoying relatives, love them. Spend time with them. Pray for them. We've got someone here in this church who's been praying for some of his nieces and nephews for years, and the Holy Spirit's just done a great work. But if they are a Christian, if they do profess to be a believer, and they are living a blatant life of sin, Paul goes, here's what to do. Verse 11. I actually wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person. Now, notice he doesn't just single out porneia or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. What does that mean, do not associate with them? The, the word has to do with mingling identifying with. In fact, he qualifies. He goes, I don't want you to even eat with them. Did he just say that? Did he just say, if you know someone who calls himself a born-again Christian, now he's assuming here the steps of Matthew 18. You've gone to them and said, you know, this is wrong, and they won't repent. You've brought someone with you, and they won't repent. Eventually, this is biblical, this isn't Mennonite, to shun and disassociate from a professing Christian who persists in sin is what the Bible teaches. And I can't tell you how many times people say, oh, well, if we do that, how's Billy going to come back to Jesus? I go, you let God worry about that. Don't outsmart God. So he says, look, here's what God wants us to do. Don't associate with them, don't eat with them. Now, Jesus said, or Paul said, don't treat them as an enemy, but reprove them as a brother. 2 Thessalonians 3 says, but I want you to do this so that they might be ashamed. Okay, now think about what he's saying here. Number one, he does not say that this guy's not saved. He goes, he doesn't go, ew, incest, he can't be saved. Mark this down. Christians can do pretty much anything unchristians can, even murder. Really? Yeah. Remember a guy named David? David was a Christian. So just because somebody does something hideous doesn't mean that they're not a Christian. 
But when someone calls themselves a Christian and they keep doing things that are hideous, it doesn't mean that they are a Christian. They're a so-called Christian. And that's all we can go by. If anyone holds to this, yes, I am a born-again Christian. Yes, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And yet they persist in a life of blatant sin of which they say, I will not repent of that. Then Paul says, then what you need to do is you need to disassociate from them. This is called church discipline. And Paul goes, we don't do that with unbelievers. I, I, don't, I don't go to the guy I, 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 I work with at, at the office. Hey, you're living with your girlfriend. I'm not allowed to have lunch with you. But if it's a Christian who you go out to lunch with every week and you know he's having an affair, you say to him, brother, I love you and I want to have fellowship with you and I'm not better than you. But God tells us as believers to withdraw from Christians who are persisting in sin because you're grieving the Lord. You're discrediting the gospel. And for, for, for Jesus' sake, I'm pleading with you to come back to the Lord. The Bible calls this restoring someone. Galatians 6 says, if anyone's in sin, you who are spiritual, restore them. And we do it gently. He said, do it with a spirit of gentleness and look to yourself lest you be tempted. We don't go, you filthy animal, how could you discredit Jesus after all he's done for you? We come humbly, we come trembling, but we say, listen, this is not right. Look at his last verse. Those who are outside of the church, let God judge them. On judgment day, God will deal them. But, but look what he's telling them to do. He says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. I had a guy once come to me and say, I want to join the church. It wasn't this church. I've been pastoring in a lot of places for a long time. He said, I want to join the church, but, but I could tell by the way he carried himself that something wasn't right. So I asked him this question. I said, do, do you struggle with homosexuality? He goes, what do you mean struggle with it? I am a homosexual. Now again, God's not picking on that sin because fornicating, adultery, those are all sexual sins. But this, this case, he, the, the man carried himself in such a way that I was like, help me understand that. He goes, yeah, I'm a homosexual. I said, but wait a minute, you're a practicing one? Because you can be a Christian who struggles with homosexual attraction, right? He goes, what do you mean am I a practicing one? What other kind are there? I said, but you do understand that the Bible says no homosexual, no immoral person, no adulterer will inherit the kingdom of God. He goes, you telling me I lost my salvation? And I'm thinking to myself, no, I don't think you lost it. He says, I've been a Christian for 20 years and it's never been an issue and it's none of your blank business. And so I read him this passage. He says, if you try that on me, I'm going to call the newspaper. I'll have the police at this church on Sunday. It wasn't here. I thought he was going to beat me up. He was in my face, in my grill. And as I talked to other pastors, they said, hey, listen, let him come to your church. He can still come. Come on, just, he can't lead in prayer. He can't do ministry. And I kept saying, well, wait a minute. Why did Paul say, remove him? And sometimes people say, well, if you remove him, he won't hear the word of God. 
as though God's going, dang, why didn't I think of that? Okay, let me change that. So, so it, it, it's, it's, it's weighty. And I don't claim that we have all the answers, but I think this is a really important passage for us to, as a church, just recognize that we, we all have a stake in this. In other words, if you personally are a believer and you know that you're practicing sin, even though others might not know it, if you know it, you've got leaven in the lump. And do remember that the Bible says, your sins will find you out. So if for some reason God's speaking to you about having some, and I'm not talking about struggling with sin, I'm talking about staying in sin. This guy wasn't going, please pray for me, I'm tempted by my stepmom. He's, he's going, hey, want to meet my girl here? This is my stepmom. And everyone's like, praise the Lord. He's such a loving guy. We love everybody here. <laughs> so, so number one, if God's speaking to you about sin, this is the, the hour of sincerity and truthfulness, right? Just repent and say, God, you know, I, I've sat with people who told me they're having an affair. And I said, dude, why don't you call the woman right now and tell her it's over? He goes, thank you for rebuking me. I said, no, that's what we do. Call her right now. Oh, pastor, it means a lot that you would speak to me. I get that. Now, would you call her? No, I'm not going to call her. So in your soul right now, call her right now. Whatever that means to you and me. And then secondly, care enough to confront. I hate this. I don't like people to not like me. I take no joy in, 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 in saying, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about this behavior. And I do not stand on a high and holy platform like being a person who doesn't sin anymore, you peon, I need to address your sin. I'm a fellow struggler, and it works both ways. You can come and, and, and um, approach me if you think I'm in sin. Now, do bear this in mind. The Bible says don't receive an accusation against an elder, and this isn't just me without two or three witnesses, because Satan does love to try to bring down spiritual leaders by lies. But none of us are immune to sin. So, do you care enough to confront something as basic as just talking to a friend? I, I, please don't say this. Yeah, I know how that'll end. Yeah, I do too. They're not going to go, I've been waiting for you to rebuke me. I've been praying that you would rebuke me. Of course not. The Bible says, he that rebukes a friend will later on find favor. Solomon wasn't a dumbbell. He goes... Read between the lines. It probably won't go well at first. But later on, they may come back and say, thank you. Something as, as simple as this. There was a time we had to ask our son to move out of our house. You think that was easy? But years later, he said, I didn't like it then, but that was the best thing he ever did for me. So, so care enough to confront first on an individual level. Matthew 18 says, go to that person. But then care enough that if they don't repent, go to the leaders of your church. Bring two or three with you. And then elders, we have to care enough that if we know there's blatant sin going on in the church, that we have to do something about it. And then ultimately, he says, Dis discontinue your contact with them. The relationship has to change. Well, they always come over every Sunday. Well, not anymore. But they're my best friend. Well, then do what the most loving thing is for them to try to get them to awaken to come out of sin. This is a strong and sobering passage. It's about church discipline. I would like to just skip over it and 
and just K-Love it, positive, encouraging, K-Love. <laughs> but we can't skip chapters, right? So, but this is important, and I exhort all of us as elders and leaders and, and Christians to go, God cares not about just the, the quantity of people in your church, but the quality that we deal openly and honestly with sin, confessing our sins, praying for one another, just going, listen, I'm struggling, but there's a difference between enduring and struggling with sin and enjoying and savoring sin. So I, I, I just recently talked to somebody from a church in this area. I said, don't you, I just saw a guy that goes to your church that came out on Facebook as a practicing homosexual. I said, he used to go to your church, right? He goes, what do you mean he used to? He still does. I go, but he just came out on Facebook as a practicing homosexual. He goes, yeah, I know, that kind of bothered me. But the pastor told me, he said, you know, we're all sinners. Can you imagine Paul going, yeah, I hear you got a guy in incest in your church, but you know, we're all sinners. We get that. Yeah, we're all sinners. But there's a difference between struggling sinners in, the, in, the, in recovery, right? This is a great recovery house. Hi, my name's Tom, and I'm in recovery. We all are, right? And the goal isn't to just come and beat ourselves up about sin. The goal is to come and celebrate the Passover, right? Jesus paid it all. Thank God he paid it all. And I got good news for my unbelieving friends, whatever you're struggling with. Jesus can help you. I'm not better than you. I'm a beggar who found the bread. Come on. But when we become part of the, the, the community, that's why we want you to get in relationships where you can be honest. You're not alone, no matter what you're struggling with. Some of you out there might be thinking, I have suicidal thoughts. You think you're alone? Or I have same-sex attraction. You think you're alone? Or my secretary, I find her quite, you think you're alone? We're not alone in this. We're all strugglers. But let's ask God to help us as a church to be a, a community that, that takes his word seriously. May the Holy Spirit help us to be both a loving, unity-focused, and purity-focused church. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, this is sobering because we are in a culture clash right now where we are being told that to speak against sin is hateful, that love is love. But thank you that your word gives us a counterculture, a Christian culture, where we can renew our minds. Please, Lord, search our hearts and where you see insincerity and falsity, help us to repent to be cleansed and to walk in sincerity and truth. May you grow us as a holy, Christ-centered community. We can't do this in our strength. Even now, I believe we're gathered not only in the name of Jesus, but with the power of the Lord Jesus present. Lord, let your power work right now in our hearts to deal with sin to give us a desire to deal with sin. Thank you that you were sacrificed once for all. We praise you for that and pray that our lives would be different throughout this week. Send us out this week with redemptive purposes to win the lost and grow the sheep. Help us to grow one another and love one another. In Jesus' name, amen.